Father, we do praise your name, uh, God. You are a good and amazing God. Uh, Lord, we thank you for the body of Christ. We thank you, Lord, that we're not uh, just one person is not the ears and the hands and the eyes and everything, that you have set things up this way uh, so that in the community, uh, Lord, the fullness of who you are, Lord, none of us as individuals could ever represent you well enough. But collectively, together, by the power of your spirit, we can represent who you are to this world and to one another. And so, Lord, as we open your word, we just pray that you would uh, give us ears to hear, eyes to see, help us to understand in the process of discipleship, uh, Lord, how we can be more like you, how we might bear fruit that will last, how we might give you glory. And Lord, even as we're here having fun and celebrating, Lord, would you just deepen our experience uh, and the knowledge of how discipleship works. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. We have reached one of my favorite times of year and really uh, one of my favorite things to do in life. And it's not just summer, I love summer. Uh, Harvest. It's sort of harvest season. We started a week or two ago with strawberries. I love living in Michigan because there's all sorts of fruits and vegetables. We missed strawberry season this year because we were on vacation. But normally, my family loves to go and pick strawberries. And my wife makes an amazing strawberry pie uh, that I look forward to uh, every year. After strawberries comes cherries and raspberries, and our family, we're fruit pickers, and so we go out and we pick cherries and raspberries, and uh, we freeze them and make smoothies with them all winter long, and that is, uh, at least from my point of view, fantastic. I sometimes have to talk my kids into eating the smoothies. Uh, Tuesday morning in our family is smoothie morning, uh, but we eat the cherries and the strawberries and smoothies that we picked. After cherry, sorry, cherries and raspberries. After cherries and raspberries, we have our own little garden, and that garden about that time, uh, you know, sort of middle of July, starts to produce. And so we normally, it's never as big a garden as I would like it to be, but uh, green beans and uh, cucumbers, sometimes lettuce, and the, the, you start to get the first of those. And uh, you know, I love. Actually, when I come home from work, kind of my first stop in the summer is to the garden. And I like to sit there and eat green beans or cucumbers or whatever before I even go inside. Love it. After that uh, comes blueberries. And blueberries are probably my favorite, favorite in our family. I think we go to the blueberry fields to pick blueberries about eight to ten times a season. And we pick roughly about 200 pounds of blueberries which is about the amount we take home. We probably pick another 200 pounds in the field that we just eat. And so blueberries, we do freeze some of them for smoothies, but for the most part in our family, they just get eaten by just the handfuls, uh, fresh Michigan blueberries. Also around that time, you know, sort of uh, mid-August, early August, uh, the tomatoes, we grow a lot of tomatoes. uh, And our tomatoes usually start to produce and Grace and I, my daughter, and then sometimes James, we do homemade salsa. And so we grow our own tomatoes, uh, sometimes cilantro, uh, and we make homemade salsa, usually like two batches a week. Nothing better than going out picking tomatoes, uh, putting them in the, in the, the Vitamix, uh, onions and uh, seasoning and all sorts of artichoke hearts and all sorts of stuff and making homemade salsa and eating that. 
After tomatoes, uh, there comes peaches. We don't always pick peaches, uh, sometimes peaches, uh, but then come apples. And uh, this is early fall, love apple season. And apple season in our family normally means applesauce day. And so we go pick a bunch of apples and we usually take about two, two and a half bushels of apples and we will make applesauce all day long, uh, usually about 80 to 100 pounds of applesauce freeze it in Ziploc bags, and then have it uh, all year long. Love it. I love all of that stuff. After apples, or maybe a little bit even sometimes before apples, we have a Concord grape vine. And so we pick our Concord grapes and we make homemade grape juice. And so uh, we get the homemade grape juice made. You got to wait three or four weeks uh, because we do this simple kind where you just put the grapes in the sugar and the water, just can them and wait. Uh, and after three, four, five weeks, you can now have homemade grape juice. Love that. And then at the tail end of the season, and I almost left this off when I was writing this talk up, we normally have beets. And beets are fine, but there's this long growing season and a lot of work, and we don't often get many beets for all our hard work. I think if we had a big farm, you'd have lots of beets. We don't. And I was going to leave the beets off, and then I realized, no, no, the beets are actually the point that I'm trying to make this morning is that the beets are pretty frustrating because you plant them early, you wait, you weed them, you do all this stuff and our beets don't grow very big. And so then at the end, you've got like one serving of beets. And so you've done all of this, you cook them up and you're like, mmm, beets, one time. <clears throat> and that's really the, as much as I love harvest, the frustration of harvest season is when the cucumbers get blighted or when the tomatoes don't grow very well, or when the strawberry season just isn't very good this year, and so you go and it's hard picking, or they're not very sweet, it's relatively frustrating. And you think, you know what? This isn't the way it's supposed to be. And so to put in all of this time and energy and effort to grow cucumbers, only to have some sort of disease or blight or whatever mess up the crop, that's frustrating. Well, this week we are talking about discipleship, and one of the most common metaphors for discipleship in the Bible is an agricultural metaphor. And the idea is, is that as disciples, we're supposed to bear fruit. And when we bear fruit, it's like harvest. It's fantastic. And I think God feels more about our harvest than we feel when we get tomatoes or blueberries or apples or whatever. He absolutely loves it. But in the same way, how much more, how much worse is it when you and I who are supposed to bear fruit don't because we're being blighted by disease or not producing sweet fruit or whatever it may be. And so this morning, what we want to talk about as we think about the discipleship process, is what are the dangers in discipleship? What are the things that might prevent us from actually producing the fruit we were designed to produce? So with that in mind, I'd like to invite you to take a Bible and turn to the Gospel of Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4, we're going to look at a relatively famous parable from Jesus, the parable of the sower, and in this parable, we're going to see some dangers to the discipleship process that if all things go as they're supposed to go, we should bear fruit. There should be a great harvest. But there are some things that Satan does 
to try to inhibit our production. And we want to understand what those are today. And we really want to ask the Spirit to help us identify any ways in our lives that some of these things might be present, hindering us from producing what it is that the Holy Spirit means to produce in our lives. So Mark chapter 4, let me read the parable for us, beginning in verse 1. Again, Jesus began to teach by the lake. The crowd that gathered around him was so large that he got into a boat and sat in it out on the lake, while all the people were along the shore at the water's edge. He taught them many things by parables, and in his teaching said, Listen, a farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants so that they did not bear grain. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up, grew, and produced a crop, some multiplying 30, some 60, some 100 times. Then Jesus said, whoever has ears, let them hear. Jump down to verse 13, and Jesus will give us the interpretation of the parable. Jesus said to them, don't you understand this parable? How then will you understand any parable? The farmer sows the word. Some people are like seed along the path where the word is sown. As soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. Others, like the seed sown on rocky places, hear the word and at once receive it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. Still others, like seeds sown among thorns, hear the word, but the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. Others, though, like the seed sown on good soil, hear the word, accept it, and produce a crop, some 30, some 60, some 100 times what was sown. In this parable... Jesus describes four kinds of soil. Now, sometimes when people hear this parable, we like to ask the question, okay, four kinds of soils, these represent four kinds of people. And we try to ask the question, okay, which of these soils represent Christians? Is it just soil four? Is it soil two and three and also four? Like who's Christian in here? I don't think Jesus is trying to answer that question with this parable. The point of this parable is not if you're soil two or soil three, are you still going to heaven? That's just not the point of the parable. The point of the parable is we all want to be soil four. That's the goal. So if you're soil two or soil three or whatever's going on there, we don't want to be there. And we're not talking about your eternal destiny at this point in the story. We're talking about uh, the fruit that you might be producing. And so the point of this parable is not to try to figure out, okay, soil one's clearly not a Christian, soil four clearly is, what about two and three? That's not the point of the parable. The point of the parable is we want everybody to be soil four. Everybody, we want everybody to produce fruit. The other danger with this parable 
is to think of yourself as being one of these soils all the time. Like, hey, I'm a second soil kind of person. I'm a rocky soil person, or I'm a weedy soil person, or I am a good soil person. I don't think it works that way necessarily either. In fact, as I was preparing uh, this talk, uh, there was uh, something, the deceitfulness of wealth, Jesus calls it, that was a weed in my own heart that as I was trying to prepare this talk, the Lord was like, hey, look, this is not going well in your life. I don't think that at that moment I was somehow transferred to become a third soil. I just think I was experiencing the difficulty in being a disciple that goes with that third soil. So what I mean is, as we look at this today, I think the best way to look at this parable is, in all of these four soils, there is something for each of us to gain. Instead of trying to figure out, okay, well, which soil am I? I think what's helpful is, in here, Jesus presents three dangers to being a disciple. And these dangers can happen no matter who you are. And if for a good portion of your life you've been producing lots of fruit, you're still subject to these dangers. And so what I want us to do today is identify these three dangers and then hopefully take an honest look in our own hearts and say, are any of these present? It has nothing to do with, well, are you not a Christian? Are you? It's just these are dangers that anybody who is trying to follow Jesus can fall into. And if we can identify those, deal with them, uh, then all of us will be able to produce the kind of fruit God wants us to produce. All right, you with me? Great. Danger number one goes with soil number one. Now, soil number one, uh, traditionally, these are, this is talking about somebody who's not really a Christian, but the danger here is possible or true for people who are Christians and it's the seed that falls not even on a soil actually it falls on the road so this is if you can think of a farm this is the stuff that's been packed down this is the road this is the hard stuff and when the seed falls on it uh, it doesn't penetrate the soil at all it's like you, you threw seed on the road it's not going through the asphalt it's not going through the beat down dirt it's just sitting there now, the warning for us, you could call it hard-heartedness. I would like to call this danger cynicism. So the first danger to bearing fruit as a disciple is hard-heartedness, or as I'm calling it here, cynicism. Now, as I was writing these talks, uh, I was in Florida uh, on my study break in April, and I needed to take an Uber uh, to go get my rental car that I was going to be using uh, for my time there. And so uh, a woman named Jalia came to pick me up. She was the Uber driver, and I got into her car, a very nice car, and she was listening to gospel music. And so I said to Jalia, oh, are you a Christian or do you just like gospel music? Uh, and she says to me, oh, I just like gospel music. And so I think, well... It's still an opening to try to talk somewhat about Jesus. And so I try to push a little bit further. And I'm like, well, how did you first get introduced to gospel music? Like, where did you, where did you first hear it? She's like, oh, I grew up listening to it in church. Oh, great. Do you, do you still go to church? No, I haven't been to church in, in four years. Uh, 
Why not? She's like, it's really hard to find a church where the pastor isn't corrupt. <laughs> At that point, I prayed that she wouldn't ask me what I did for a living. <laughs> so I was like, okay. I was like, uh, she's like, I was like, well, what about the, your home church where you heard the gospel music? She's like, yeah, that was, a pretty, that was, that was an okay church. I was like, um, is, it, is it near here? She's like, yeah, but it's, it's too far a drive. It's about an hour away. I can't drive that far to go to church. She's like, I drive all the time for Uber. I don't want to drive that far for church. Okay, so we talk a little bit more, and, and there isn't really much more to get to on the spiritual side. And uh, I ask her, she's got a, she's got a daughter, and uh, she's like, oh, yeah, my daughter, she's super sassy. She doesn't listen to anybody. Uh, I can't get through to her, any of those kinds of things. And I'm thinking to myself, well, Jesus would be perfect <laughs> for your daughter and for you and church. But the problem was is that in her cynicism, uh, she was unable to find a way for the word to penetrate her heart. I do think an hour is a long way to drive but not to have kids who look like Jesus at the end. And I do think, hey, look, lots of pastors are corrupt, sadly, but not all of them. And I do think it can be tough to find a church. But if it's worth it, you will do it. But the cynicism, the hard-heartedness was keeping her. I think she's probably a Christian as I listen to her story. I'm not sure her daughter is. And the, and the tragedy of this situation is, is that her own cynicism about pain, and I'm not doubting the pain she might have experienced in church. But the danger is, is the cynicism that there, in fact, Jesus talks about this kind of cynicism uh, in Luke's gospel. He says this, to what then can I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to each other. We played the pipe for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not cry. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say, oh, he's got a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Now, you may have heard that passage before. If you think about the passage, it's talking about cynicism. The people that Jesus is referring to can find something wrong with everything, including John the Baptist and amazingly Jesus. The cynics are sitting back saying, oh, John the Baptist, that guy, he's crazy. Oh, Jesus, well, I can't have anything to do with him. He's a drunkard and a glutton. And the point is there are certain people in this world who can find something wrong with everything. And maybe at your church, they're like, hey, look, we're going to wear masks for COVID. The cynic is going to say, masks, why are they always trying to make us wear masks? They're always trying to make us do something at the church. Or maybe your church is doing a building project. The cynical heart is going to say, oh, they just want our money. Or maybe your spouse says to you, hey, we should join a small group. The cynic's heart says, small group people are weird. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you've been asked or to live among, among non-Christians and you could be a witness to them. The cynic's heart said, they're not going to listen. It's true that sometimes building projects uh, end up being more about money than they are about the kingdom. It's true that some people in small groups are strange. It's true that sometimes non-Christians 
don't listen. And it's true that some pastors are corrupt. Cynicism, when it seeps into our heart, Jesus says, that makes your hard, heart hard-hearted and it will keep you from bearing fruit. Anything, even John the Baptist, even Jesus, people can find something to be cynical about. So danger number one to bearing fruit is cynicism. Danger number two goes with the second soil. And this soil uh, is described as rocky. It did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they have no root. This is the second danger to to discipleship. And I'm going to label this danger weakness. Now, you might have thought that we would label this danger persecution or difficulty or trouble because Jesus says, hey, trouble happens and then the plant withers. But I don't think that's actually the danger or the the distraction. The problem here is weakness. And the idea is Jesus in another place tells a story about a man who builds his house on the rock and a man who builds his house on the sand. And when the rain comes, the man who builds his house on the rock is just fine. And the man who builds his house on the sand, his house is washed away. The danger is not the rain. It's going to rain no matter what. The real issue is the foundation. So to here, the sun is going to shine on all of these plants. And so the problem is not the sun. The problem is the roots of the plant. And so the danger is not sun. Sun is going to happen. The danger is not rain, rain is going to happen. The danger is not trouble, trouble is going to happen. The danger is not persecution, persecution is going to happen. The danger is if you've got weak roots as a plant, you're not going to bear fruit. The trouble's going to come, the persecution's going to come, the difficulty's going to come, and instead of bearing fruit, you're going to wilt. So this raises the question. How do plants end up having strong roots? Now, for those of you who are farmers or know a lot more about farming than I do, forgive me if I get some of this wrong, but I spend a lot of time researching sort of scientifically what causes a plant to have strong roots. And I found there are four things. Now, again, uh, the sort of scientific studies that I read might be wrong, but they kind of made sense to me when I heard them, and I want to share them with you today as we think about this from a spiritual point of view. What causes a plant to have strong roots? Number one, breeding. In fact, I found an article that I think people in the agricultural industry are super excited about. There was a finding at Penn State, I think in January, I was studying this in March or April, where they discovered something, and I can't pronounce it, called MCS. I don't really know what that's an acronym for. But they discovered it in uh, varieties of corn and barley and wheat. And again, those of you who know something about this, please come tell me afterwards, because I'd like to know more about it. I thought it was really interesting. But basically, when they found this property in the roots, it made them tough. And it made them strong. And the reason why agriculturalists are so excited about this recent finding is that it's hereditary. Meaning that parent plants can pass them on to children plants. Meaning that you can breed for this. 
which is a really exciting finding to help make corn and barley and wheat more resistant uh, to some of the things going on in the soil and in the environment. Now, as I thought about that, I thought, I think this is probably true in the spiritual world, that there is something about parents passing on to children strength in faith. That when your kids see you go through the loss, perhaps, of your parent or the loss of a loved one and not lose faith, they're watching. And when they see you go through that, that gives them strength. When they watch how you've gone through this very difficult season we've had uh, over the past year, year and a half with COVID and politics and racial issues, and they watch how you have handled those things, if you handle that with strength of faith, I think that gets passed on to them. So I think breeding is a way that parents give to children, whether spiritual or biological parents, give to children strength. The second thing that scientists say that cause plants to have strong roots is nutrients in the soil. Phosphorus and potassium especially helps plants, help plants grow strong roots. Again, we just mentioned this past year, COVID, racial issues, political stuff, just a really difficult year. And Eric mentioned this in his first talk on Monday. I noticed people who during this season have been absorbed in the word of God have stood rather strong. And those who have been engaged with media, social media, news media, taking in all of that stuff have wilted under the pressure. Eric was talking about that, get off this stuff. I think the point from this passage is there's no nutrients there. And you spend all of that time taking in all of this stuff, but there's no life in those things. This is the word of God, and it has nutrients in it that cause your roots to grow strong. And one of the most heartbreaking things for me as a pastor is I have watched lots and plants, and you see them only the surface. You don't see the roots. And then COVID and uh, the racial stuff and political stuff, all that stuff happened, and I started watching plants wither and fall. This exact thing happening because their roots weren't strong. They had spent so much time worrying about what everybody else thinks, listening to everybody else's opinion, and hadn't spent any time, like Eric was encouraging us to do, in God's word. But I also saw people who were in God's word who you would watch them. They would hear some bad news, you would hear some difficult story, and you could see the plant begin to waver. And then they would get into the word of God and you could almost feel the strength come back to them. You could hear it in their voice. You could see it in their eyes. The nutrients in the soil give strength to the roots. The plants all look the same on the surface, but underneath, where are your roots going down into? Scientists also tell us, not surprisingly, that adequate sunshine is important for strong roots. I think in the spiritual world, this is comparative to experiencing God's presence. God is a bright, shining sun. Malachi says the sun, S-U-N, of righteousness will rise with healing in its rays. And that in church, God is uniquely present. In nature, in prayer, in his word, and when you spend time in God's presence, you're like a plant soaking in the sunshine of his love and his grace. And plants that get more sun have stronger roots. People that are in church, people that are in nature, people that are in commu Christian community, people that are in God's word, people that are in God's prayer are exposed to God more regularly and that strengthens their roots. 
And then the last one I thought was most fascinating. And I'd like to spend just a minute or two kind of going over it with you. The fourth thing that scientists think make roots strong is not overwatering. I thought this was fascinating. Now, some of you may know a lot about farming and know, yes, of course, this is how it works. For me, this was really fascinating. The point is, if a plant gets too much water, its roots don't grow deep and strong. And in fact, the plants with the strongest roots in the world are those found in desert environments because the roots either have to go really wide or really deep to find water. And as I was thinking through this and praying through this, you know, most of us here, many of us here, parents or grandparents and thinking about the next generation, there is a danger in overwatering your kids. Meaning, we all want to put them in situations where they don't suffer too much, where there's not too much difficulty. The problem is, is they'll have weak roots. And one of the ways to give kids strong roots is to allow them to go through suffering and difficulty because that will cause the roots of their faith to go deep or to go wide. And some of us think, how do I find a way for my kid to get just the right classes, to get just the right grades, to have a great GPA, to get into the right college? In reality, it might be better for your child to take a harder class that's going to cause them to pray more that might cause them to get a worse grade. Yes, their transcript will look worse, but their roots will go deeper and they will be stronger. Likewise, we think, hey, how do I surround myself with Christians so that my interactions with my neighbors and with my friends and other people, you know, we have Jesus in common. We can pray for one another and encourage one another. That's great. But there is a danger of overwatering that if you're not regularly exposed to the kinds of suffering or difficulty that comes from regular interaction with non-Christians, your roots aren't very deep. That was fascinating to me. Jesus says, look, the second danger to producing great fruit is if you don't have strong roots. Because when the sun rises, when the rains come, if you don't have strong roots, you're not going to produce much fruit. A third danger... And that's the soil that Jesus describes, the third soil. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants, so they did not bear grain. Those thorns or weeds represent the third danger to producing fruit as a disciple. And I belabeled that third one, distractions. These are distractions uh, that keep us from bearing the fruit we're supposed to bear. Now, my wife, Lisa, and I, she's right down front here, we, for a long time, had a running debate uh, that I ended up losing about the value of weeding. Weeding, weeding the grass, weeding the flower bed, weeding the garden. Uh, I used to be an engineer. I'm a very practical sort of person. I'm a very, and weeding did not seem like a very practical thing to do. You pull the weeds, they come back. Why not just let them grow? It's kind of like making your bed. You know what? It's just going to get messy again. Why make the, I also make the bed, just so you know. <clears throat> Why make the bed? Why weed? And so for years, I just thought, hey, look, she doesn't really love weeding, but I think she finds it sort of fulfilling and sort of relaxing to go pull weeds. I just found it to be a waste of time. I was like, as long as the plants are bigger than the weeds, I think we're okay. Well, the reason I say I lost the debate is that one time we were together with an agronomist, uh, an agriculturalist in England, 
And so he was a no-nonsense kind of guy, and I thought, you know, this guy's going to see it from my point of view. Like, he's a very utilitarian kind of person. So I say to him, I'm like, hey, can you just, is there any value to weeding? And I'm, I kind of led in with the expectation that the answer would be no. I tried to ask the question in such a way that the answer, of course, we all know there's no value to weeding, right? And he's like, yeah, no, that's dumb. He's like, the weeds, they steal the sun and the nutrients and the water from the plants. And even if they're not bigger than the plants, they're taking stuff from the plant. So, great, I lost that debate. So now I weed. If I had been reading my Bible and paying attention, I would have known that weeding was important because Jesus says it right here. He says the pro- one of the reasons why plants don't produce fruit is because other stuff is stealing time and energy and resources, those kinds of things. Distractions, we would call them. Well, what are the distractions? Well, Jesus gives us three of them, and they're good ones. So let's look at those. Verse 19 Number one, number one distraction Jesus lists, the worries of this life. The worries of that, and you can think of it this way. You and I have a certain amount of energy that we can put into producing fruit. If like weeds, there are worries all around us and we are sending all of our energy to those worries, we're not going to be producing fruit. If you've experienced anxiety, I've gone through, I've had a season, uh, uh, several years of panic attacks. If you've gone through uh, worries, you know that you can spend a lot of time running through scenarios in your mind that may never, ever come to pass. And you can exert a lot of energy worrying about things that never happen. And Jesus, in a very utilitarian passage, says, Which of you, by worrying, can add even one hour to your life? What he's saying is, you're spending all this time, you're sending all the nutrients and the sunlight and the soil, you're sending all that stuff out into building imaginary things that may never come to pass. And Jesus says, if you do that, you're not going to have the time or the energy or the resources to produce fruit. Worry is draining. Anxiety is difficult. It takes mental energy. It takes time. And Jesus says this is one of Satan's favorite distractions. If he can plant things to worry about in your life, well, then it just sucks all the energy and the nutrients out of you. The second one Jesus gives us, and I love the phrase, the deceitfulness of wealth. The deceitfulness of wealth. I told you when I was writing this sermon, uh, I wrote it from the perspective of, I'm a good fourth soil person. I produce lots of fruit. And in the middle of it, Jesus said, you may be a fourth soil person, but right now you got some third soil stuff going on in your life. And it was the deceitfulness of wealth. I was away on my study leave. And what I do on my study leave is I often think about the future. Normally, I'm thinking about the future for like the church or writing talks like this. But anytime you think about the future, you start thinking about, okay, well, we're thinking about budgets and finances and those sorts of things. And, and I noticed, I was, as I was thinking through this, I'm like, well, I got some 
kids that are potentially going to college soon and trying to think through, okay, saving money for college and how are we doing there? And man, if we could just cut expenses here and we have some stuff on our home we're trying to get done. And man, if we just had a little bit more money for this and you just spend lots of time thinking through, oh man, if we could just have a little bit more here, if you know the amount going in monthly to this was just a little bit bigger, that would take care of that sooner than this. And the mortgage could be taken care of there. And pretty soon the Lord was like, hello, hello, McFly, anybody there? And I'm like, what? He's like, you're spending all this time thinking that if you just had a little bit more money, that would take care of the, that's the deceitfulness of wealth. It's deceiving you. And then Jesus asked me this question. He said, okay, listen, what do you need more money for today? And I was like, well, need nothing. <laughs> I got some food here. I got stuff taken care of. Yes, but college is coming. No, no, no. Jesus is like, today, what do you need more money for today? And to be honest, the answer was nothing. I didn't need any more money for anything today. And God said, I know you need the rest of that stuff. Seek first my kingdom and I'll take care of all of the rest. Of it. But the deceitfulness of wealth is it's promising something it can't deliver. If you have just a little more money set aside for a college fund or just a little more money to pay off some debt or just a little more, that's not going to get you any further to bearing fruit. And you spend all of this time thinking if we could just shift some of the money from here and what if we cut some of the spending out of here and what if we did something here and what if this investment actually performed this way and what if I had bought GameStop or whatever else it was and what if it had gone way... It's the deceitfulness of wealth and all of a sudden I'm writing this talk and I'm spending all my time thinking if we just had a little bit more, the Lord is like, that's soil three kind of thinking. And instead of bearing fruit, we're sending all of our energy and our resources and our thoughts to, oh, if we just have a little bit more here or a little bit more there. It's a distraction and it keeps you from bearing fruit. I was so grateful for this passage. I was like, Lord, I think this has been going on for a little while. I think that slowly over time, I had allowed some of these, just the thoughts, just thoughts about money to sort of creep in and take a bigger spot. And Jesus says, beware. The deceitfulness of wealth will keep you from bearing fruit. And then the third distraction that Jesus gives us is desires for other things. Desires for other things can be desires for uh, sex with your spouse. This can be desire for uh, other kinds of pleasure, comfort, desire for vacation, desire for affirmation, desire for success. Whatever it is your heart desire, Jesus says, be careful. Where your heart is, that's where your treasure is going to be. Where your treasure is, that's where your heart's going to be. These two things go together. And one of the great distractions is we just spend all this time thinking, how do I get those things that I want out of life? And Jesus says, be careful. The more you think about the stuff that you want, the less fruit you're going to bear. Now, I told you that harvest is my sort of favorite time of year and one of my favorite things to do in life. I love to go and pick fruit and vegetables that have grown. But I got to tell you that one of the things I love most about gardening and probably this is the reason why I often stop in our garden on the way home after work is it is to me a daily tangible miracle. It's a miracle from God. When you take like tomato seeds, these are little tiny, they look like they're just little 
little tiny pieces of paper and you plant them into the ground and they grow into these big, huge tomato plants and you pick from them like 10, 15, 20 tomatoes, each one of which is like a thousand times bigger than the seed that went into the ground. And sometimes I stand in the garden and I think, this, it is a miracle. You just get to watch, this is unbelievable. And that's perhaps one of the things I enjoy most about harvest is a living miracle from God. We sometimes see people get healed in our church from physical maladies. That's pretty amazing. We sometimes see miraculous things happen. But this is a daily miracle. The earth produces far more than it should. And the beautiful thing about this parable and the beautiful thing about discipleship is if you and I are willing to deal with these things, our human nature towards cynicism, the fact that sometimes because of the environment around us we have weakness in our lives and the distractions that plague us, the promise is, is that we will bear miraculous amounts of fruit. That being a disciple, there's nothing in this parable that says you need to do this, this, and this in order to bear fruit. It just says you got to stop letting these things get in the way of the process. And that when I put that seed in the ground, and when I weed around it, and when I water it, and when I take care of it, I can go to bed at night, and that seed is growing. And that when I'm not even watching, it starts bearing fruit. There are things that will try to stop it from bearing fruit. But if I deal with those things, the plant itself will miraculously produce the most amazing fruit. And Jesus says, that's what it means to be a disciple. So may God give us wisdom and grace to think through if these things are in our lives, how to deal with those so that we might be fourth soil fruit producing disciples. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this time, Jesus. This parable is so straightforward and it's so simple and yet it's so deep and it's so powerful and it's so relevant. Thank you, Jesus, for coming and living among us. Thank you for living at a time when they didn't have mass-produced food so that you could know experientially what it was like to garden, to till the soil, so that you could tell these parables. Thank you that today we still see the miracle of the earth producing food and that you send sunshine and rain upon this earth and it produces food. Lord, the food that we're going to eat today, the food that we're going to partake of, let us not forget this is a miracle, a gift from you. But Lord, how much more valuable the fruit of a life dependent on you, the spiritual fruit that comes. And in this room, Lord, I am looking around and seeing tomato seeds and cucumber seeds and blueberry plants and cherry trees. And Lord, you have a beautiful garden. Lord, Satan is trying desperately to mess up the harvest. I pray, Lord God, that we would be honest with each other, that we would be honest with you. Thank you for this time in April, Lord, in which you reminded me the deceitfulness of wealth was choking out my ability to bear fruit. For my brothers and sisters here, would you give them opportunity to think through any of these dangers or distractions, remove them from us, and let us enjoy with you a bountiful, plentiful, miraculous harvest. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.